0: Now, the topic of this uh, conference is uh, Father Thomas Joseph, uh, as uh, uh, Father Thomas Joseph already mentioned, Thomas Aquinas on creation and nature. And it seems that the terms creation and nature cover a key issue, if not the heart of Thomas's thought. Most of us, I think, will agree with Chesterton when he suggests that if Thomas Aquinas had to be given a religious name, as is customary among Carmelites, he should be called Thomas a creatore. And indeed, we find both terms, creation and nature, over and again in Aquinas' works. I did a quick search through the index domesticus and shows that the term natura and its, its, uh, its derivatives occur roughly about 40,000 times, and the term creatio and its derivatives about 14,000 times. So the frequency with which Thomas Aquinas uses these terms indicates their central importance for his thought. However, I think that we should not overestimate the importance of the notions of creation and of nature in Aquinas' theology. I hope I'm not offending the organizers of this conference. That's not my intention. On the contrary, I want to praise their wisdom in choosing uh, uh, this topic, creation and nature. Both creation and nature are central terms, central issues in late modern culture. And I think that a critical review of how these terms function in Aquinas' thought can shed new light on our understanding of creation, the terms creation and nature. This morning, I want to put the spotlight on the term nature, leaving creation for another occasion. Nature, of course, is a very broad term. It's used in discussions about ecological crises, Identity, politics, bioethics, etc. Don't worry, I'll not go into that. I shall narrow down the concept of nature first by talking only about human nature, and second by approaching human nature in a particular way that is, in its relation to the classical theological, the, theological notion of original sin. And of course, I shall focus on Thomas Aquinas. But I think to understand Thomas Aquinas' view, it's also necessary to look briefly at what was said before him about human nature in relation to, Er in particular, what was said about about it by Augustine and Ansel. And also to look at, at what happened after Aquinas, in particular, in the thought of Don Scotus and the theologians of the 16th and 17th centuries so my paper is divided in three parts first i shall elaborate a bit on the distinction between the augustinian and the aristotelian notion of nature and also on the consequences of introducing the aristotelian notion of nature into theology during the 13th century excuse me the second part of my paper will be about Anselm's definition of original sin as um, the loss of original justice and how Anselm's definition was interpreted by Aquinas. And third, I shall go into Scotus' view on human nature uh, and uh, original sin. And I shall also go into the Catholic views uh, during the 16th and 17th century. So, but before I get to, to the first I shall give away the I'm going to make in my first I shall argue that Aquinas, is, that, that Aquinas introduces nature as a third category for developing a theological anthropology besides the two other terms of sin and grace sin and grace which we find uh, in particular in Augustine and in scripture of course However, this third category, the category of nature, is not a real uh, alternative for Aquinas to the categories of sin and grace. Aquinas maintains the biblical and Augustinian dichotomy of either sin or grace, but elaborates on this dichotomy through the concept of nature. And I shall try to show how the notion of state of nature, status naturae, is pivotal in Aquinas' project of integrating the Aristotelian category of nature into the Augustinian biblical economy of sin and grace. The second major claim of this paper is that the view that uh, original sin is nothing but a relapse into a purely natural state. Which is often identified as the Catholic view, but that view is in fact the view of Dom Scotus, which became do- which became dominant as of the 16th century. And I think this this view, and I'm 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 happy I'm here among Dominicans and not well few Franciscans. So. <laughs> um, I think that the view of Thomas Scotus has serious um, theological and anthropological problems. So the first part, two concepts of nature, Augustine and Aristotle. Though it's not a key term for him, also um, Augustine uses the term nature when he talks about human beings. But what is characteristic for Augustine is that he uses nature as a descriptive term of a concrete historical situation. According to Augustine, the true and proper sense of the word human nature refers to the actual condition in which human beings were originally created by God. For example, in the he writes, I quote, nature, as it was originally created without fault, is that is what is truly and properly called human nature. End of quote. As a consequence. Augustine has problem using the term nature for human beings after the fall. And in the same passage from the Retractationes continues, I quote, but we use the word human nature, we use it metaphorically when we call nature as how man is born nowadays. And according to this use, the apostle has said, we were once children of wrath by nature just like the others." (laughs) Elsewhere, Augustine says that after the fall, human nature has changed. So, Augustine has to say either that after the fall, human nature is said only metaphorically of human beings, or he has to say that human nature has changed after the fall. This, of course, raises problems to what extent we can call sinners truly human beings. Aristotle has a different concept of nature. For him, the very term nature is not not so much a descriptive historical or empirical term, but rather a metaphysical, normative, analytical construct. For Aristotle, nature indicates what something should have or should be in order to qualify as as a specific kind of being. As a consequence for Aristotle, natures or essences are necessary and unchangeable. So Augustine's suggestion that nature can change would make no sense for Aristotle. If nature changes according to Aristotle, it would no longer be that nature. Just like the number three would no longer be the number three if it had changed into the number four. And likewise, Aristotle also says that generic substances um, which indicate what kind of being something is, and also specific differences are spoken of uh, univocally. So Aristotle would frown at uh, Augustine's suggestion that human nature is said metaphorically of human beings before and after the fall. He would say that either something is a human being or it is not. So in short, both strategies. of of Augustine to differentiate between human nature before and after the fall. That is, first, the strategy that human nature is set metaphorically of human beings before and after the fall. And the second strategy that human nature has changed. Both of these would make no sense for Aristotle. Around the 1230s, Aristotle's metaphysical notion of human nature was introduced into Western theology. And on the basis of this Aristotelian concept of human nature, scholastics would no longer say that before the fall, Adam and Eve existed in a truly and and, and, and properly natural state, as Augustine would have it. Rather, the scholastic said that Adam and Eve existed in a special state usually referred to as a state of original justice. Well, there has been some discussion of the content, the meaning of the term original justice. But I think it's safe to say that original justice covers two elements. First, supernatural grace, which orders the human being to the supernatural goal of participating in the Trinity. And second, the preternatural gifts, the preternatural gifts, as they would be called in the 19th century. These preternatural gifts make that in Adam and Eve, human nature was actualized according to all its natural potentials. Adam and Eve had full scientific knowledge. They also possessed all the natural virtues. Furthermore, Adam and Eve, before the fall, enjoyed an, an internal harmony of reason and passions, and also the harmony of body and soul, resulting in immortality. So in short, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect moral, intellectual, emotional, and physical rectitude. This state of human human nature as existing according to its full natural perfection is called the state of integral nature, status status naturae integrae. Now, after the fall, not only supernatural grace but also the state of original nature was lost all agree on that the very same nature came to exist in a different state which was which is traditionally called the state of corrupted or fallen violated or wounded or sick nature in other words it's not only the individual <clears throat> excuse me it's not only the individual human person but also human nature itself actually never has been in some pure or neutral state. There never was or will be a status nature pure. In reality, there are only two options. Human nature is either in its integral state, as it existed before the fall, or in a fallen state, as it exists now. That these are states of human nature and not of the human person. It's also why Aquinas locates the formal and effective effective principles of each state, so um, not in the powers of the soul, but in its essence. And for the same reason, the states of integral nature are also um, uh, hereditary. Original sin is transmitted to children and likewise had they not fallen. Adam and Eve would also have passed on original justice to their progeny. So it is, a state. It is this notion of state. Okay. I'll just continue. Um, I hope this is not a no. providential no. sign. <laughs> 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 I wasn't aware of, of, ex, of expressing some heretic. He, he, he agrees. agrees. He, he agrees. agrees. He, he agrees. agrees. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So it's, uh, I think, this notion of status nature, which enables Aquinas to integrate Aristotle's concept of nature within the, the economy of sin and grace. Not only the human person, but also human nature itself has always been embedded in God's economy of grace and God's call to humanity to participate in his own life. On the other hand, um, introducing the parameter of nature besides sin and grace also enables scholastic theology to differentiate between two functions of grace. Grace not only elevates the human person to the supernatural end, but also heals the wounds afflicted to human nature by original sin. And I shall discuss these wounds to human nature in second next second part of my paper so the second part is about anselm's definition of original sin and how Aquinas interpret interpreted it so as we saw for augustine human nature has been intrinsically affected and even changed by original sin the key term for augustine in this as you will all know is concupiscence but well, concupiscence is a loaded term with a connotation of that is a will that is not ultimately directed to God, but it also has sensual and sexual overtones. How we should interpret, how we should understand concupiscence in Augustine that remains a matter of debate. But you can safely assume that it means that concupiscence means some kind of inner disordering that has become inherent in all human beings. In 1100, Anselm of Canterbury introduced a new definition of original sin in terms of what he calls the loss, or privation, or destitution, or as he sometimes calls it, the nudity, the nuditas, and absence of the justice that's due to God. Anselm mentions Augustine's concupiscence only once, as far as I know. But it's clear that, like Augustine, also Anselm thinks that human nature is intrinsically corrupted, infected, by Adam's fall. Human nature became sinful. Like, because, like Augustine, also Anselm uses an empirical, historical notion of human nature. He is not yet familiar with the Aristotelian metaphysical notion of nature. But Anselm's definition of original sin became very popular in scholastic theology, starting with Alexander of Hales in the 1220s. And usually, Anselm's definition was rendered something like the lacking or robbing of original justice. In Latin, carencia, or privatio, justitiae originalis. However, the possible meaning of this definition changed with the introduction of Aristotle's notion of human nature. As I mentioned before, against the background of the Aristotelian concept of nature, scholastic theologians no longer saw the existential situation of Adam and Eve as natural in the true and proper sense of the world, of, 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 uh, of the world. It was rather supernatural and preternatural. Hence, in theory, in theory, it became possible to interpret anselms privation definition of original sin as meaning that only the super and the preternatural gifts were lost, leaving human nature in a kind of purely natural state, in puris naturalibus. And this would mean that original sin does not intrinsically affect human nature, that that, uh, original sin does not intrinsically affect human nature as such that human nature is not worse off after the fall. And I think, in fact, the young Thomas Aquinas adopts this this interpretation of original sin. In his uh, commentary on the sentences, Aquinas writes that after the fall, I quote, the human being is left with only those good things which he has on the basis of natural principles. End of quote. However, young Thomas Aquinas is not consistent. Later on, in the same discussion on original sin in, in the scriptum, he says in a strongly Augustinian sense, I quote, from the act of nature that is carnal reproduction, there remains some disposition in the nature itself of the offspring, which inclines to evil, and is called concupiscence. That corruption, that corruption of nature has in it the power of the sin from which it is caused." End of quote. So apparently, for the young Aquinas, the authority of Augustine is so great that a purely privative definition of original sin, in combination with an Aristotelian concept of human nature, that this purely privative definition of original sin will not do. He he juxtaposes it with the Augustinian idea of a corrupted nature. But he doesn't um, relate the two views. They remain isolated. This changes in Aquinas' later views. Again, in his later views, in, in Summa, he states that original sin is not merely the absence of original justice, but also involves a corruption. But now he integrates it to the two elements to views. And he uses the analogy of the composition of form and matter. This way, he manages to combine Anselm's absence of original justice as the formal element of original sin with Augustine's concupiscence as its material element. Now, Aquinas further specifies the material element of original sin as follows. After the fall, he says, human beings retain the principles of nature. That is, human natures retain their souls and bodies and also the the properties that follow from these principles, like the powers of the intellect and the senses. Of these human powers, there are four which are morally relevant. It's intellectual will, reason, and the two parts of the sensitive appetite the concupisciblis and the irasciblis. Well now, the damage of original sin regards all these four powers. With reference to Aristotle and to Cicero, Aquinas states that these human powers have by nature a tendency to virtue. The natural virtues themselves, of course, do not belong to human nature as such. We have to acquire these natural virtues. But by nature, each of these four human powers has a positive inclination to virtue. And Aquinas calls these inclinations, he calls them beginnings, seeds, seed beds, and principles for virtue. And he even values these inclinations to virtue as nobler and higher than the acquired virtues themselves. According to Aquinas, the damage of original sin precisely regards the natural inclinations to virtue in these four powers. In the corrupted state, human nature suffers from wounds in each of these four powers. The wound of ignorance impairs the power of reason. The wound of malice, malicia, uh, uh, impairs the intellectual will. And the wounds of concupiscence, understood here as Aristotelian vice, And and of weakness imply a disordering of the two parts of the sensitive appetite, the concupiscibilis and the irascibilis. Now, with regard to the sensitive, it's important to, to remember, to keep in mind, that with regard to the sensitive appetite and the accompanying passions, it's important to keep in mind that Aquinas thinks that by nature these The sensitive appetite conforms to the guidance and kingly rule of reason. This natural amenability to reason makes our sensitive powers specifically human phenomena, and not just something that we share with irrational beasts. The rule of reason over the senses is not tyrannical, but political. So that in the end, the sensitive appetite and its passions and its, and, its, and its passions are not suppressed or forced back, but they flourish. And as we shall later, Scotus will have a different view on the nature of these sensitive powers. When elaborating on the wounds caused by the fall in human nature, Aquinas often cites a phrase that because of original sin, the human being is both stripped from the gifts of grace and wounded in its natural endowments, in Latin, tum gratuitis expoliatus, tum vulneratus in naturalibus. This phrase captures the two aspects of original sin, loss of supernatural grace and damage to human nature. And Aquinas mentions the Venerable as its author, and indeed the phrase Tum gratuitis, expoliatus, tum funeratus naturalibus, is found in, is in a homily for Palm Sunday that is traditionally attributed to Bede. In this sermon, the author, whether it's Bede or not—that's matter of debate—but in this in this sermon, the author mentions the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke, in Luke 10. And he compares Christ with the Good Samaritan, and Adam with the man who went them to Jericho so the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho that that is Adam who fell from uh, the state of paradise to um, state after the fall. The man in Luke 10 was attacked by robbers who stripped him of his clothes, beat him and left him half death. And Peter Lombard included the phrase both stripped from the gifts of grace, and wounded in the the natural endowments, Peter Lombard included it in the sentences. And that's how it became very popular. And I think Bede might also be in the background of Anselm's metaphor of nudity, of nuditas, for characterizing fallen human nature. The third part of my paper, Duns Scotus and 16th, 17th century theologians. To my knowledge. Don Scotus is the first theologian who unequivocally opts for the view view on original sin uh, of Anselm through the lens of Aristotle. That is, for Scotus, original sin is nothing but the loss of supernatural original justice. And for Scotus, it means that human nature returns to some kind of purely natural state. Characteristic for Scotus's position is that he thinks that the fight, the rebellio, in Latin, the fight between the sensitive appetite and reason in human beings, that that fight is not caused by some added wound or corruption to human nature, but that that fight is natural to human beings. By its very nature, the sensitive appetite desires what is pleasing to to the senses, Scotus says. While reason must restrain, impediendum, and rein in, defrenando, so the whip, this desire. Well, this scotistic position on the, sen- on the sensitive appetite has at, least, has, has at least two serious consequences. First, Scotus's view makes the doctrine of original sin ineffective as a partial solution to the problem of the theology, problem of evil. After all, even before Augustine, the doctrine of original sin functioned as an answer to the gnostic idea that evil is inherent to matter and corporality. In particular, um, Irenaeus of Lyon argued that evil did not come about through God's creation of Adam and Eve as corporeal beings. However, if, as Scotus claims, if the inner disharmony is already accounted for by human nature as such, which is created by God, and not only by Adam's transgressions, then original sin can no longer exonerate God for the existence of evil, and even suggest a creator. Second consequence of Scotus' view is that it tends to a dualistic anthropology with platonic, if not gnostic, overtones. Again, I apologize for the Franciscans who are here. I, I have a high regard of Scotus, but here I think he um, <clears throat> it should be uh, improved. Um, so Scotus view, uh, in, in Scotus' view, um, evil and sin are located only in, in the body, in the senses, not in the mind. And instead of the natural compliance of the sensitive appetite to reason, which Aquinas held, Scotus thinks that sensitive desires and emotions have by nature an anti rational inclination and need the bridle and a whip of the whip of the despotic rule of reason. And now I jump two centuries forward. It seems that at least from the beginning of the 16th century onward, there was a tendency among Roman Catholic theologians to downplay the effects of original sin and to follow the Scotist view. I think we already find that tendency in Cajetan's commentary on the Summa written in the 1510s. And one of the most outspoken representatives of the view that original sin is nothing but a relapse into a purely natural state was another Dominican, Domingo de Soto. In 1547, de Soto published a treatise called De Natura et Gratia. At that time, de Soto participated in the Council of Trent and his treatise originated from the preparatory work he did. While the, council, while, while the Council was drafting the decrees on original sin and justification. Now, in chapter 13 of De Natura Grazia, De Soto discusses the three effects of original sin. The first two effects have to do with the loss of, supernatural, of the supernatural gifts of grace. But the third one, the third effect of original sin, according to De Soto, is I quote, our defect and wounding. Namely, the unbridledness of concupiscence, which from then on is no longer bound by reason or divine law and is drawn impulsively to sensory things, which is its nature." End of quote. So de Soto insists that this unbridledness of concupiscence is not a kind of extra positive divine infliction or punishment, It's just the automatic result of the loss of original justice. Original justice, in fact, is nothing but a kind of relapse into a purely natural state. And like Scotus, De Soto has to confirm that what he calls the the wrestling, lucta in Latin, between the intellective and the sensitive part belongs to human nature as such, because human nature is composed of of two opposite elements, body and soul. However, being a Dominican, I think, De Soto refuses to acknowledge the Scotist origin of his view. In fact, he expressly denies that he holds the view of Scotus and he claims he represents Aquinas' view. Um, but apart from the metaphors of the fight between the senses and reason and uh, the absence of the bridle of reason, the Soto also refers to beads metaphor. And he writes that because of original sin, the human being is, again, both robbed from the gifts of grace and wounded in its natural endowments. The Soto acknowledges that this is an authoritative statement and also he acknowledges that, it, that the statement suggests the opposite of what he himself had claimed. The statement seems to indicate that after the fall, we are worse off than human beings who had been created in a purely natural condition, because now, after the fall, our nature is wounded. However, Soto claims, theologians unanimously deny this reading. And a Long quotation from the Soto. For God, he says, for God who clothed our nature with a supernatural gift, did not treat the sinner with a greater humiliation than leaving her naked. This is both because of his kindness and because we did not lose something by our own will. Losing something by our own will that would be um, actual sin. Therefore, he says, therefore, a human being in a purely natural situation is no different from a fallen human being in this respect, except for the notion of guilt. In the same way as a naked person, a naked person who was never clothed does not differ from a person who was once clothed but is now stripped. Both are equally naked. The only difference is that in the first case, uh, the nudity was in no way a punishment but only the natural absence of garments, while in the second case, the nudity is a robbing because of guilt. End of quote. De Soto claims he claims that all Roman Catholic theologians of his time are unanimous in asserting that, that original sin does not add an extra wound to human nature. but leaves it in a state of a purely natural state. I think that's not quite true. For example, De Soto's contemporary, the Louvain theologian John Driedo, thinks that the fallen affects, that, that, that that the fall does affect human nature. The council fathers of Trent refrained from taking a stance in this matter. Canon one of the tridentine Decree on Original Sin states that Adam deteriorated according to body and soul. But the comparison here is only made with regard to the state of original justice. And not the, the, the deterioration is not said to be uh, with respect to a state of pure nature. The concept version of the decree had mentioned that also no part of his soul had remained unhurt, But this phrase was deleted from the final redaction. So Trent left it an open issue if and to what degree human nature itself was affected by original sin. I think that almost all leading post tridentine the- uh, theologians followed De Soto. Bellarmine, for example, writes, I quote, Bellarmine writes that when the gift was lost by sin, that is, the gift of original justice was lost by sin, our nature returned to that state in which it would have been if it was in a purely natural state. End of quote. And again, he also, uh, Bellarmine says that the state of, human, of uh, human beings after the fall does not differ more from its, from its purely natural state than someone who is stripped differs from someone who is naked. Like Scotus and De Soto, also Bellamine has to admit that an, that, an, that an internal struggle between the senses and the intellect belongs to human nature as such. And remarkably, he calls this natural tension in the human being between intellect and senses, he calls this the sickness, a morbus, or weakness, languor, of human nature arising from its material condition. Uh, this is remarkable because um, in the Augustinian view on original sin, morbus and weakness uh, and uh, languor had been key terms for characterizing fallen human nature. And now Bellarmine uses this to describe, to describe not fallen human nature, but human nature in its n- purely natural state. Bellamy I mean, arg- uh, continues by arguing that the extra gift of original justice, I quote, by which, as if by a golden bridle, the lower part of the senses, was easily remained subjected to a higher part reason. And I think we find the same Scotist view uh, in, for example, Molina, uh, Martin Canes, uh, Suarez, and Leonardo Desius. Conclusion of my paper. The concept of human nature plays an important role in Aquinas' thought. But I think there is a real danger if we study human nature in isolation and take what Aquinas writes about human nature as a phenomenological description of actual reality, as if our nature existed in a kind of purely natural state as if our human nature were not intrinsically wounded. But the first major claim I try to make in my paper is that we should read Aquinas' text about human nature within the broader context of sin and grace, in which the notion of human nature does not serve as an actual description, but as a conceptual tool that helps us to analyze the intricate complexity of our concrete lives. There are, I think, several reasons why modern Thomists have the tendency to treat human nature as an independent topic in Aquinas. And one of them is that in Catholic theology, since the 16th century, the Scotist view on original sin has become dominant. And for Scotus, fallen human nature is in reality equivalent to human nature in a purely natural state. And original sin does not imply an intrinsic damage to human nature. This, as we saw, uh, this implies for Scotus that the inner struggle between the sensitive and the rational part is natural to human beings. And I've tried to show that that is not the view of Aquinas. That was the second major part, major claim of my paper. I think Aquinas is loyal to Augustine, and thinks that human nature itself is worse off after the fall and in need of God's healing grace. He also thinks, contrary to Scotus, that by nature our sensitive part is amenable to the intellectual part. And this view on the relation between reason and senses can account, I think, better for the unity of the human being and also for the excellence of God as creator. Well, in short, as students of Thomas Aquinas, I think we should be very careful in talking about human nature in itself. And we should always consider what Aquinas says about human nature in the broader context of God's economy of grace, which heals our wounded nature and elevates us to participation in God's own eternal life. Professor Stump said that for the, um, to understand uh, SCOTUS better, you have to keep in mind that SCOTUS has a different um, idea of what freedom is. Freedom for him means that you can choose between alternatives. And having that, that choice is only possible if there is a fight between the intellect and the senses. So with this idea of freedom, then, for Scotus, God would not be um, a bad creator, but only you know, he would create the, the possibilities for genuine freedom. But Professor Stump does, does not agree with or is hesitant about this view of Scotus. And I would also I would have a different interpretation of what freedom means. But you are right within Scotus's uh, perception of freedom, human freedom as the choosing between uh, alternatives. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. For the father Aquinas, for him, the human nature, after sin, lost the, the grace, supernatural grace, and also was wounded in its nature. It was an implicit damage to its nature. But he also teaches that the sinner the individuals are able to know God, to a certain extent within their natural abilities, and able to do good, do moral good. So how do we
1: consult with the fact that their nature was damaged by sin? Yes, they able to do something good.
0: Perfect. Thank you for this question, because that gives me an opportunity to mention something that I didn't put in my paper. Um, I would say that for Aquinas, God's healing grace is also present in the non-believers. That so, what non-believers, non-Christians, or people who are not in the state of grace, what they can do, that they can do, they can do it because of God's healing grace. Their nature is wounded, but God is already present with His grace, not with sanctifying grace, but with His uh, well, whatever you call it, uh, actual grace or. The prevenient grace, or, but he is already present and active, actively working, uh, healing wounded nature in also the um, um, uh, people who uh, who lack uh, the state of grace. Does that answer your question? Luca, maybe. You 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 also Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. If Father Thomas Joseph gives us some time we'll Thank you for your know,
1: like to
0: just to uh, check if I have uh, understood the one. Uh, um to uh, make sense of uh, the uh, Augustinian idea of uh, corruption of nature in an Aristotelian thing, you need uh, the concept of written natural as a is it? And uh, uh, my question is, uh,
1: if you can elaborate about uh, this concept of written natural and
0: how plausible is How plausible, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the con- so I would say the concept of preternatural gifts—so gifts, so gifts that, that are that are not supra naturum but preter-naturum. Um i think that uh, that uh, it means that uh, Adam and Eve, you know, they were brilliant philosophers and theologians and scientists, and and um, you know perfect uh, inner harmony of the senses and maybe if you allow me, it's one of the, of, of the favorite passages, at least for my students, the favorite, one of the favorite passages in the Summa where Thomas Aquinas says that um, sexual intercourse before the fall was much more pleasurable than after the fall. So it, it was perfect, um, Moral, intellectual, physical, rectitude. But that is not what, what, what belongs to human nature as such. I mean, when to human nature as such, it belongs that we should acquire, and cost, cost, my students know that, it costs a lot of time and, and sweat you know, to acquire knowledge and to acquire the virtues, and that is a lifelong process. But. Adam and Eve, just you know, at the very beginning when they were created, God already gave them the full uh, actualization of their natural uh, potencies. You are. It, that's a, yeah? Yeah, okay. Yes, please. I am Matthew Raymond, of the United States.
1: Thanks, that was really great. I actually had never seen SCOTUS to the in a period of time that particular point. And I'm very hopeful. I'm not usually thinking of myself as a SCOTUS. However, I, I could find something compelling there in the, the issue of the struggle. And that is, in terms of engaging evolutionary biology, if you look at it from a scientific point of view, it seems most likely there was a struggle. Now, I'm, I know that you can come around and say, well, it's a data revelation that there wasn't. Um, and so I like hearing what about that in terms of engaging in evolution. And along with that, um, this is built on a natural death issue. But how about the issue of death? How does that play into it? Thank you very much.
0: Death. Okay. Um, you want specifically about death uh, from an evolutionary or biological point of view? What what I think about it.
1: Yes death
0: and/or suffering. Uh, and
1: suffering, as, a distinct, as a distinct from the struggle. There's just the issue of suffering itself. Oh, yeah.
0: Um, well, uh, for Aquinas, death is natural, in the sense because our body is composed of different, different elements, it just has to uh, dissolve. But, um, He also claims that if there is a perfect harmony between soul and the body, that that the human body becomes truly human body and becomes immortal. So if the soul Uh, reigns or actualizes the body in a perfect way, then the body becomes, um, becomes uh, immortal. So in that sense, I would, he doesn't say this, but I would argue that also for Aquinas, immortality is also natural in a sense. Because, because every composed body has to dissolve, but precisely because it, it is a human body, that dissolution is no longer absolutely natural in case that, that the form, that, that if the form, uh, the soul um, controls or reigns or rules the, the human body in a, in a perfect way. I think you're not completely, but we can over lunch or something or... You know. Oh, that's not oh, OK, that's not possible. Well, that also has a thing to do with. Uh, when we look at human nature from a, from a, a biological perspective, then we take human nature as a descriptive concept. You know. As, well, human nature is just as you can observe what happens. That is, that is human nature. That would be an Augustinian idea of human nature. For Aristotle, human nature is not something that you can observe. Human nature is more a kind of metaphysical construct. Um, So what we find, what we see, is not human nature as such. Aquinas would say what we find, what we see, what we observe, what. Evolutionary theorists uh, observe and biologists observe that that is fallen human nature, or human nature in its fallen state. And, and yeah, of, and you are right. It is a matter of faith to convert, to say that Adam and Eve were created perfectly by God. That's not something that we can think up can think up um, ourselves.
1: Thank you very much for your presentation. If I ask just two questions, one is just a question of verification. In the first section, when you summarize the introduction of Aristotle's notion of nature into uh, the Christian tradition in the 1230s, I'm just not clear who did this. Is this Lombard? Because this achievement mm-hmm. sounds so optimistic. In other words, what is that? Um, who is doing this introduction and who, who comes up with this, that um, original justice has these two
0: elements? Um, well, the, um, uh, the introduction of this Aristotelian notion of human nature, well, I would say around the 1220s or something, you know, it's, it, it's not uh, in Lombard yet, it, it, is, it is later. And, um, but what happens with this introduction of Aristotelian uh, notion of nature, that the traditional um, definition of of Anselm, saying original sin is nothing but the loss of um, original justice, that this definition of Anselm can get a different meaning. Because with the Aristotelian notion of nature, you could interpret Anselm's privation only loss of super and preternatural gifts and return to a... Um...
1: No, but I was just asking your summary of, of the introduction.
0: It, it, it's a description of what did that achieve? Um, I think you... Um, the. Uh, It is already in uh, Alexander of Hales. Uh, Alexander of of Hales already uses this idea of uh, the status naturae. Um, um, But I think it is really Aquinas, as far as I know, the first one who really integrates the Augustinian idea and the Anselm slash Aristotelian view. As far as I know, Aquinas is, is the first one who really brings them together.
1: That, that's what I, I thought, and that's yeah. why I was confused because um, you didn't really actually refer to Aquinas in terms of accomplishing
0: this. this I see, yeah, yeah I, I, I see that, okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: Just, and then my substantive question is, For the dust nature changes because of the fall? For mm-hmm. Aquinas nature is wounded. Mm-hmm. Is that a real change in the nature or just the loss of it, uh, integrity that nature has human nature has only physical race?
0: Good question, yeah. No, I think it is not um, well it is an intrinsic damage to human nature. So in a sense, human nature has changed. Um, but not in its essence. For Aquinas, human nature means that you have a body and a soul and that you have an intellect and a will and senses and all. That remains intact. It's only this natural inclination of the intellect and reason and the sensitive um, appetite that the natural inclination towards virtue in these powers, that that natural inclination is damage or lost. So, in that sense, there is a kind of change in human nature. But,
1: but, uh, but unlike later, was the orientation to virtue or still remains.
0: N- um, it rem- the orientation towards, no, it doesn't remain, but it comes back through God's healing grace to, to the presence of God's uh, activity. Um, helping every human being to regain and improve this natural natural, uh, inclination.
1: Please help me thank Professor harman